Today's Animal Spirits is brought to you by Future Proof. There's only two weeks left to get tickets. The deadline is August 15th. Uh, the Hyatt is sold out. That's where I'm staying. And the other three, there's three more? I thought there was two more. All right. They added there's a hotel more, this year. There's two or three last year. Now there's three or four. The other three are going quick. See the link in the description for a handful of current discounts for financial professionals. I just want to give one shout out to Virgil Wealth, company that we invested in. They came through big time. They're bringing In-N-Out Burger. There's this going to be an In-N-Out Burger truck. How cool is that? Not only is it great, because that was one of my favorite parts about the whole conference, as far as a small thing goes, from the fact that you didn't have to sit down for like a dry piece of chicken, like from hotel food. They had all these food trucks there. Now this year, Virgil's bringing this big In-N-Out cookout truck. And this is going to be great for content, because there's going to be so many arguments about what is the best burger, right? When I go to New York, we argue about what the best pizza place is. This is going to be, is it Five Guys? Is it In-N-Out? Is it Culver's? One of these places, right? Shake Shack? Last week on the podcast, we spoke a little bit about fast food. I think that was last week. And in the airport on the way home, I had a spicy chicken sandwich. That, if I could eat that every single day, I would. That's your everyday is, meal? That's my everyday meal. It is the perfect sandwich in my estimation. For me, for my taste buds, you have yours, I have mine. For my taste buds, it doesn't get better than the number six. All right, I would be either tacos or cheeseburgers, but that's why I can't wait for the in and out. Futureproof.advisorcircle.com to register. There you go. We'll see you there. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. Now, Ben, I, I was actually going to say something, so this is not just shtick, but then I saw you tweeted about it. Can you believe it's August? <laughs> this is this is what you say when you reach middle age. Every every single week, you check another box about hitting middle age, and you keep saying you're not middle age, but it's it's just slowly. Oh, me personally? Oh yes, yes. You you keep saying it like I'm not middle age, but every week you check a new box. This is just I I mentioned this at on one of our podcasts recently that the thing you say to everyone when you show up to a conference. It, like everyone gets together for a drink in the bar. You say, so when did you get in? No one actually cares when you got in, but it's an icebreaker. For parents, it's, geez, can you believe that it's August already? Where did the summer go? I really, I mean, listen, I really can't. And then it's going to be September. Geez, can you believe it's September? School's back already? Where did the, where, where did the time go? This is what people yeah. say when they get older. It happens. It is what it is. What it is. All right. Uh, James Paserno at the thecapitalspectator.com had a piece, all major asset classes are now posting year-to-date gains. He put he put ETFs for all the major asset classes, U.S. stocks, foreign stocks, emerging market stocks, emerging market bonds, U.S. bonds, tips, junk bonds, REITs, all this stuff. Even commodities now eking out a gain. Everything is up this year. I, I guess which kind of makes sense when you figure that everything was down last year. The, the NASDAQ 100 is up 45%. As of this morning, we're recording this on Tuesday, noon Eastern, correct? I don't want to mess you up with uh, time change stuff again. 
I know that that's a pet peeve of yours, even though you don't have pet peeves. The time I have chain. no pet peeves. Last week, somebody emailed me, said, hey, uh, can you meet 9 a.m. Pacific time? You know what I did? I said, how about 11 Pacific time? <laughs> Credit the way you. it's supposed to be done. So markets are going crazy this year. It's, it's, it's only July, but I mean, just a complete sea change from last year. It's, it's, it's total opposite. 2022 versus 2023. Uh, yeah. So this is the best performance through July of any year on record for the NASDAQ 100. That's a, that's a face melter right there. How is that? What? This, this How? Is, this has got to be tough for the people who were calling for an end of like the technology super cycle and tech was in a bubble and growth is just too crazy. You, you had, what, a 15-month period maybe where it was like the reprieve from that and now just right back on, right back on the horse. We are at the point in time uh, where you're starting to see some signs that the market's getting a little, little frothy. People are getting a little bit excited. The, the, the junky stocks are rallying. So uh, Goldman Sachs believes, this is from, this is from uh, Walter Bloomberg at Delta One, Goldman Sachs believes signs of capitulation are starting to emerge. And I'd say, yeah, they sure are. Uh, so wait, so this is the other capitulation. So when the, and during a bear market, you're looking for capitulation of people, everyone's selling, and this, yeah, is, this the is the capitulation of people buying. So Goldman Sachs publishes, uh, the prime book of global equities and, and there's, there's short selling and short covering, and there's been massive short covering over the last couple of weeks. This is, this, this just is, this is a painful stat that I'm about to deliver from Goldman Sachs. By the way, let me give you a chart. These, some of these charts come from at daily chart book. This person publishes phenomenal charts. I'm a subscriber, and I, I encourage you to check them out on Twitter, at Daily Chartbook. Fundamental long-short managers have experienced nine consecutive days of negative alpha, which is the longest period since June 2017. So what's going up? The crap names that everybody's short. I'll use Carvana as an example. And uh, names that are uh, money losing in the sense that the companies are not making money. And uh, that's that's not great. And then it it always seems like this because human nature, like the pendulum always swings too far in either direction. But it it just seems like in recent years, the extremes are more extreme of like the people who are getting punished are being punished a lot when things either when things go against them in a certain direction. Right. When when the the speculative stuff got when, when it crashed, it Got, I mean, the stock market was down 20%, but there was so many things that were down 70 to 90%, right? And now when that stuff is coming back, the, the whoever was on the other side of it is getting crushed too. It just seems like the extreme movements are, are just getting further and further, doesn't it? Yes. Every, yeah, records all over the place. Speaking of, sentiment about equities against bonds is the highest it's been in 24 years. And I don't know exactly what's in here, but it says, this is from Bloomberg, the, the index measures futures positioning surveys Options activity and fund flows. Did you see actually? Wait, mean, of wait. Options, this is meaning that people are more optimistic about stocks than bonds relative to bonds in the last since since this goes back to 1998, which is kind of nuts considering how well stocks have just done the data that we just gave and the fact that bonds are now actually a viable alternative. The fact that there's record, you know. So anyway, I'm not saying that a crash is coming. In fact, I'm definitely not saying a crash. Let's get. I want to be very clear. But uh, maybe, maybe no more new positions. Maybe if you're getting excited, just just pump the brakes a little bit. Is part of that? Do you think the fact that bonds got shellacked last year 
And like, uh-uh. even though even though yields are much higher now, that you're not you're not seeing the fruits of that labor, and a lot of no. bond positions are still underwater. In my opinion, this is more of a numerator thing. If bonds are at the denominator, I think this is not a bond story; it's a stock story. People are, people are just exciting and chasing because everything's working, right? Like stocks stocks look great. Uh, and one more one more sign of like, uh, God, I'm about to use the word that I don't like to use. People are complacent. I don't know what else to say. Uh, so. <laughs> So it, net- it is funny how how quickly that happens. We, we, well, it wasn't it wasn't that quick. It took months, months. But we went from a nasty, nasty bear market yeah. where people thought the world is coming to an end, and now all of a sudden people are complacent in a bull market that has like lasted seven, for like two months. No, yeah, yeah. So net call volume, so call volume jumps to the highest level since late 2021, and you know what? You know that was a pretty hilarious environment. So net uh, record call, uh, not record highest call volume since late 2021. And on the other side, the cost of buying a put has fallen to the fallen to the lowest level on record. So everybody's buying call options. Nobody wants a put option. These are things that you typically don't see at the beginning of a rally, let's just say. It, it is funny because we, we know empirically everything is cyclical in the markets, but it never feels like it's going to be cyclical when you're at the extremes. Like it just feels like, oh, whatever, whatever's happening is going to last forever. And we know that's not true and it is never going to be true, but you can't help but feel that way. I was on, Josh and I just did a podcast with Dan and Guy uh, on the tape and, and Josh made a point that recency bias is the most powerful behavioral thing. And you just said it. I, I, think, think, it you guys are, I think you guys are spot on. Whatever's happening today, even though you know it can't last forever, you behave as if it's going to. Right, and when I say you, I mean people that are positioning and trading, act as if act as if whatever happened over the last, pick your time frame, one week, three months, six months, whatever it is, that will happen going forward, and we just know that's not how markets work. All right, so why don't we zoom out a little bit? Did you read the new Mobison piece from Morgan Stanley? I did, and I, and it's I loved it, and it's great. But he he did this piece. This feels like an update to a piece that he did like a couple of years ago. I don't He's done this he, birth, this, death, this and wealth creation. I don't think this so. Is, so that no, this is this is one of his greatest hits. I'm positive he's done this piece before. Okay, there's he's some, done some, some there, of this, but there's some there's some new stuff in here. But this is uh, so. Anyway, he, listen, I, I, I revisit the greatest hits all the time. I'm, I'm not throwing shade. It's a great piece. This is like the Mobis and Spotify playlist. It's like some of yeah, the best it's, stuff. Yeah, it's great. It's so great. this was interesting. So fewer pub. He talked about we've talked about this before. There's fewer public companies in the U.S. in 2022 than there were in 1976. But the fact, but now we have 1.5 as many. Popu- 1.5 times population, real GDP per capita Wait, is two times. Me. What? You lost me. Okay. So population right now is 1.5 times higher than it was in 1976. Okay. He's, he's making the case and then- The population of what? People or companies? Of the United States. So just okay. saying there's, there's more people, GDP per capita is two time, 2.2 times higher and the number of firms was 1.5 times higher back then. So he's saying, they're saying researchers estimate the gap in the US is 58 Hundred to twelve thousand companies that like it should be that many higher if we were to stay on the same trajectory as back then. But oh, I thought you said well. But the but is that a lot of those companies were microcap companies. Yes, yes. It, but that it's also should not exist. Yes, that that's part of it. The other interesting thing to me though, he he shares this chart of the survival rate of IPO companies, the amount that survived their first five years and first seven years. I don't these 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 numbers are. I guess aren't as high as that, like anywhere from 30 to 40%, sometimes 50% and sometimes in some decades of IPO companies just fail to survive five years even. 
Does that number surprise you? It's a jungle out there. The, the failure rate is way higher than I would have thought. I mean, being a publicly traded company, the, that, is, that is the arena, right? Like just gladiators waiting to knife you. And a lot of it, because a lot of these companies, uh, as he shows, it's, it's they, 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 get, they get taken over or under. Right, it's, it's not it's not necessarily bankruptcies or delisting. Yeah, it doesn't mean they're all. Yeah, you're right. They could be bought it's out. But a lot of them, and he he goes through the paper. You can read it. But the other one is just this Besson Binder study that we've mentioned a ton of times about how there's been like 28,000 public companies in the U.S. since 1926. Sixty percent of them destroyed 9.1 trillion dollars of value. The 11,000 or more than 40 percent created the the bulk of the value, and then. He said there's a net wealth creation of $55 trillion from the stock market since 1926. More than $50 trillion was attributable to 2% of the sample. The top three names, Apple, Microsoft, and Exxon, added almost $6 trillion alone. So the $50 trillion total net wealth that's been added from the stock market, $6 trillion has come from three stocks, which is pretty darn... And then this chart kind of shows the top 20 wealth creators. It's a lot of names that you'd think Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Home Depot's on there, Berkshire... Walmart. Anyway, worth going through this. Great, great. I'd like to pull the charts out. I'm a chart guy. Yeah, great charts. I think one of the one of the takeaways, and we've spoken about this from the Best and Binder study. Yes, it's advocating for index funds. Ultimately, that's one of the main conclusions. But it's easy to poke holes in some of this data. In other words, who's buying at the IPO and then holding forever? Right? Like you could have good returns on a company even if you don't buy it at its IPO and hold it for its lifetime. I don't think anybody's actually doing that. And then the other thing is that Mobison pointed this out. Like. Yeah, General Electric is on this chart, uh, but that hasn't delivered shareholder value in and or IBM in what fifteen years? It depends when you when you bought so, it. Right. So, the recency bias talk. What is my favorite thing about the Wall Street Journal? When they find uh, random people. When they find random people on the street and they give their so this is uh, they found a strategic communication consultant in Pittsburgh, and here's some good stuff from her. She says her and her husband have been buying short-term T-bills with yields of nearly five point five percent through Treasury Direct. She said. How does it feel to know that we're outpacing our mortgage with treasuries? It feels good. And now that we're beating inflation, plus there's no state or local income tax, actually it feels great. That's fine, right? That's a, that's a great thing. They're, they're, they locked in a 3% mortgage. They're now earning 5.5% on T-bills. That's a good thing. Here's where the extreme comes in. We aren't going to get rich on T-bills, but we aren't going to lose it by rolling dice in the stock market. This is where she loses me. She said she got wrapped up in the meme stock craze of 2021, losing a couple thousand dollars after dipping her toes into active trading through GameStop shares. Although that sum wasn't a big blow to her portfolio, she says it underscores how she feels about investing, taking a conservative, slow and steady wins the race approach to core holdings and reserving excess cash to play the market. This is where the extreme comes in, where I played the stock market and, and by trading right. meme stocks, so I'm yeah, never thought, playing it again. She thought that was investing. Yes. And so now I can go into T-bills and 6% T-bills, which we're going to get pretty soon. Now that the Fed has raised and they could potentially raise again, we're not quite at 6% yet, but we're, we're getting there or we're going to get there. I, I just think that extreme of going from, I speculated my face off in 2021 and lost some money. So now I'm just going to go to the safety of T-bills forever and avoid the stock market. That could work for a little while, but the long-term T-bill return over the, the very long-term called 100 years is like 3% per year, which is nominal. Effect- Nominal, which is effectively the inflation rate. I think you might right. earn 30 to 50 basis points over the rate inflation over the long-term in T-bills. So she so, has a quote, I'm guaranteed not to lose. Or hey, I'm guaranteed not to lose. CDs are easy, plentiful, and now they're paying very high rates. I'm taking advantage of that. Nitpicking, but you're, well, if you do that over forever, you're guaranteed to lose. 
not forget about beating the stock market. You you might not even beat inflation. So yeah, listen, there's nothing wrong with putting some of your money in and CDs earning five percent. I think it's a great option, but not for everything. Not for yeah. not for not for your future wealth. Unless you just want to have an extremely high savings rate, you can't keep all of your money in cash and expect to beat the rate of inflation substantially over the long term. It's just, it's just not going to happen. That that's the extremes where like in 2021, I'm going crazy because rates are at zero, and now that rates are higher, I'm completely taking everything off the table. That's there has to be balance. Yes. Uh, can we talk about this meme without making it too boring and reading the whole thing? Probably not. I think you're just gonna have to read it. Okay. You're, you're better at reading this stuff than me. You do it. Thank you. So, so what, you. What, we're, what we're looking at here is the scene in Goodwill Hunting, which I caught the uh, "It's Not Your Fault" scene uh, two nights ago. Oh, it gets me every time. God, what, what, it, I, it got it. Got me. It got me. As it always does. Great movie. Great movie. Um, okay, so it's the scene at the bar at the bar where the guy tries to impress his uh, his buddies or the, tries to impress the girls by dropping some knowledge and Matt Damon takes a big steamy dump on his forehead. So here's the quote. Good meme format here too. <laughs> I, f- I was about to do the Boston accent. I'm not going to do that. Of course that's your contention. You're fir- so la- I'm sorry. Let me just set the table. Last week we spoke about how people, young investors don't read Graham gram anymore. And then we saw this meme. Okay. Yes. A lot of people definitely agreed with us about that. That young investors of, don't read Graham as much anymore. Of course, it's your contention. You're a first-year investor. You just got finished reading some deep value historian, Ben Graham probably. You're going to be convinced of net nets until next month when you get to Warren Buffett. Then you're going to be talking about how Graham's ideas are antiquated and that you simply have to buy and hold quality, letting time arbitrage do its thing. That's going to last until next year. You're going to be in here regurgitating Fisher and Lynch, talking about you know the importance of placing more emphasis on qualitative analysis in your investment process. Shortly after that, you'll discover Drucky Miller parroting that we should never invest in the present and that buying decisions should be based on what you believe the environment or prospects will be like 20, 18 to 24 months from today. Uh, just nailed it. That's like pretty much the exact format of that movie, of that line in the movie. And this comes from, I don't know if this person stole it or if this is the creator, but the tweet is from at investment talk with two Ks, Connor Mack. Well done to whoever created that meme. It's really, really uh, a bravo. Nailed it. Nailed it. Yes. All right. We, ben and I had on Bruce Bond to talk about uh, the the ETF with zero downside risk that ruffled many feathers. Fe- feathers were ruffled. Balchunas tweeted, buffer ETFs have taken in over $5 billion this year, a 23% organic growth rate. It's now a $28 billion category. BlackRock just wow. launched them too. I underestimated this category. There's clearly a lot of appetite. Okay. So we'll take a little victory lap here. When Ben and I first had Bruce Bond on the podcast in 2018? Probably 17 or 18, 18 yeah. It, yeah. Uh, this, this immediately to us, I said, this is going to be a category because investors love defined outcomes. They love their will. It's, it's spelled out. I'm willing to give up this amount of upside in exchange for this amount of downside. Investing is all about trade-offs with risk and reward, except- most of the times you don't see, you don't explicitly see the trade-off, right? You just sort of know what the range of outcomes is for stocks and bonds with this. It's like, no, 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 no. Uh, 10% upside, 6%, no, nah, I don't want that one. 12% upside, 4% down, or whatever number it is. Like you could pick whatever you're, whatever is suited for your interest and your risk tolerance. So that's why we were bullish on the category. And especially for like retirees and financial advisor clients, people who who have a decent amount of money and 
and are just living off of their portfolio, I think these these are very appealing to that group. Um, ben, we like to talk about investor positioning, do we not? Yes. Especially as we spoke about earlier, especially when it's like at the extremes. You know, I don't, I think for the most part, positioning is just good for talking about it. But like when something's, you know, really making a, a multi-year move, I, you know, I like to pay attention. Um, all right. So JP Morgan, Treasury Client Survey Index. Our client survey indicates that long duration positioning is more widely held now than at any point over the last five to 10 years. So long duration, call it whatever, 20, 30-year bonds. There, That's where all of the juice is. So they're very, very sensitive to interest rate movements. And so these this would indicate that they're, these people are positioned for the long end of the curve to fall. Well, guess what's breaking out today to a multi-year high? So the 30-year is at 4.1%. That is the highest level since November 2022. So I guess, uh, oof. Cut off sides a little bit. Oof to the positioning. The thing, the funny thing about rates is, I think rates rising were way more worrisome when inflation was rising. But now it seems that rates are rising because economic growth, at least estimated economic growth, is accelerating again. Don't you think that this the, this rate rise is a lot is is much so much much more of a better thing than it was twelve months ago? Well, absolutely, because rates were rising because the Fed was jacking up rates, right? And then of course the rates got inverted. But yeah, you're exactly right. The Fed controls the shortest part of the curve. When you're talking about, forget about 10 years, out 30 years, that's like economic uh, growth type stuff. That's that's uh, economic and inflation expectations for way out there. So I think that this is this is uh, a good thing. I just think it'd be kind of funny if the, the Fed wanted to jack up rates to slow inflation if rates actually went higher from economic growth reaccelerating than it did from the Fed jacking rates up, which is, I don't know, it's it's possible if the economy keeps going. So credit to the Wall Street Journal for beating me to the rich session thing. I thought I I thought I planted my flag on that one. I was proven wrong. They, they got me there. Last week, the Wall Street Journal had a piece about uh, what Fed rate hikes much of America's consumer debt is still riding ultra low interest rates. The whole point of the article was, why haven't higher rates hurt the economy yet? Because the consumer locked in such low rates. I beat them to this one. Okay, I've been, I've been, this is not a Grand Rapids hedge. I've been pounding the table on this one for a while. I wrote a piece about a week before this. I'm just, just facts, okay? Uh, so here's some, here's some more interesting stuff from the Wall Street Wait, Journal. Wait, hang on, hang on. Just, 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 the question is, like, the Fed keeps saying the full impact of our actions has yet to be felt, right? They keep saying that, they keep saying that. Why? As Ben's about to explain, consumers, a lot of the, the debt's not floating. Most of it is fixed. Same thing with corporations. How many times do we say the S&P 500, like 90% of the debt is long-term fixed? Right. So this here's, here's another example. In the depths of the pandemic, Alex and Cynthia Durbin refinanced their mortgage at 2.75%. They built up their savings by spending less than paid off a car loan and student debt. That means the family's balance sheet didn't take a hit when the Fed started raising aggressively last year. It's given us a tremendous amount of breathing room, Durbin said, of his mortgage rate. And then they show the share of households debt that adjusts with market interest rates. And in the 80s and 90s, this was like got up to 4%, 40%. I'm guessing people got into the adjustable rate mortgage, uh, adjustable rate stuff in the 80s and has fallen ever since. And now it's just a little over 10% of debt that adjusts with rates, meaning it's all fixed and locked in. So it hasn't been 
As of the first quarter, only 11% of outstanding household debt carried rates that fluctuated with benchmark rates, according to Moody's. Uh, Households only have to pay 9% of their disposable income to stay current on their debts in the first quarter, according to the Fed. That is above where it was at the depths of the pandemic, but way below uh, post-crisis average. People just locked their debt in for so long that it's not going to be a problem for a long time, I feel like, for consumers. Yeah, now, for companies and people that are exposed to higher rates, oh, they're feeling it. It hurts, It sucks. But this is why the economy is not coming unglued, because most people just aren't impacted by rising rates. Yes, exactly. So I want to talk now about government debt, okay? So I posted this one on Twitter last week. Just a, This is a statement. I'm not making any opinions. The U.S. economy has grown by more than $5 trillion since the start of the pandemic in 2020. So it went from $21 trillion and change to $26 trillion and change. What's the matter? Your legs getting tired? Been, you know, I've been, I don't know. Just felt like switching it up. I've been standing all day. Okay. I, Actually, and Josh and I went on a decent walk, so... 90% of the day I use the standing desk. So I, I posted this saying that, you know, the economy has grown by $5 trillion. And I know Twitter people are not real life, but everyone, everyone on Twitter, well, of course, but how much did the U.S. government print? How much, how much money did we borrow to get that? And I want to say, unequivocally, government spending that leads to good outcomes, that's a good thing. Like, obviously, we don't want the government to be wasteful, but if the government's spending money, I think some people f- assume that like before, I don't know, 2008, the, there was never any in- intervention from the Fed or from the government. How do you think we got like the such, people look at the 50s and 60s as this glorious time, like they're nostalgic for that period how again. How do you think we paid for World War II? Yes, how do you think we got that, the, this wonderful middle class? Because coming out of the war, there was a GI Bill. The government basically backstopped the building of suburbia. Like they 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 backstopped and put insurance up on the, home builders to build houses. How do you think people got cheap houses back then? It wasn't because it, w- it wasn't because people were bootstrapping and doing it on their own. The government backstopped a lot of that. The government spent a ton of money. That's what got us out of the Great Depression and brought us into the 50s. It's the government spending. That's what did it. So I thought you were going to say people in the 50s woke up at 4 a.m. and meditated. Well, they had a good morning routine. Uh, Ernie Tedeschi said about 0.4% of Q2's 2.4% real GDP growth came from the construction of manufacturing structures such as factories. The last time construction contributed so much to quarterly growth was 1981. And a lot of that is because the government did this chip thing where they, they're incentivizing companies to build. Did you see this frying pan chart thing? This is a really mm. good take uh, from Alex Williams, who is at Employ America. And he's, he's comparing gross domestic product and personal consumption expenditures and state and local government. And he calls them frying pan charts because in the 2008 crisis, they crashed and went way below trend. And now all these economic charts are coming back to trend. So it, Wait, it's sha- shaped it, like a frying it, it pan. Looks, it looks like a frying pan? Think about it. Down, flat, up. Took me a minute to find it too. You'll get it. Do I have, to, t- you- do I have to turn my head? Yeah, turn it to 45 oh, degrees. Oh, there it is. All right, I guess. Sure. And yeah. the point is that like we we totally underspent coming out of the, the great financial crisis. And it's almost like we needed to go through that period to do it, to get, to do it better the next time. And now we're back on trend on all these economic policies. And I think my biggest takeaway here, can we at least agree that fiscal policy is like 10 times more important than monetary policy for the economy? I think monetary policy is definitely important for the markets and a lot of pieces of it. But I think fiscal policy in terms of moving the economy in the right direction we have a question. is so, way so, more important. So what caused the, the pan, so what caused us to go below trend 
He's saying what? It was because all that we did was monetary experiments after the GFC and not enough fiscal response. Yes. Is that it? The government okay. did do enough to help bring that back and so I will agree that and- I will I will definitely agree that fiscal has a more direct impact, right? Yeah. But monetary monetary policy, as we just lived through and experienced and explained, monetary policy can only do so much when so much of your of your debt is fixed. If you are in an economy, like a, a developing economy where I'm guessing most of the debt is floating, monetary policy can have a massive impact. But for the United States in 2023, yeah, fiscal policy is is at this point no question more important than monetary policy. And I also in the short run. I've flip-flopped on this like six six times now. Right after the pandemic, I said, now fiscal policy is going to be used after every crisis going forward. And then we had inflation, and I flipped the other way, and I said, no, there's no way they're going to use it. Now that we're seeing the positive effects of this, I think it's going to depend on who is in charge politically. Because, I mean, I'm sorry, but the the fiscal the fiscal experiment that we did, it's never going to be as big as this going forward. But I don't see how you, if you're weighing pros and cons, couldn't say that the benefits far outweighed the downsides on this fiscal policy experiment that we had, and that I think we could be seeing a sea change here. If you look at what the United States did versus the other countries and how far they've fallen behind, it's because we used the bazooka, and it's helped. And we have low unemployment, and inflation is falling, and the economy is booming again. I think I think it's it's on the table again. I'm, I'm doing the, 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 the double flip-flop here. Andrew Ross Sorkin tweeted, the self-checkout at the airport kiosk today asked whether I'd like to tip 15, 20, or 25%. It is a self-checkout. What is happening? It is getting out of control. It really is. Can we put the self, can we put a tip button on YouTube? If you like this podcast, tip us 25%. There we go. Hey, what do you tip room service? Okay. Good question. I'm all over the place with this, but go ahead. My very first job was a busboy at Minerva's. Uh, Google which is a, right now. A restaurant in the Park Place Hotel. And part of that service was taking food Ooh. from the kitchen to people's room service. What? I'm sorry. I just looked at the number, but finish your thought. And I always felt as someone bringing up the, the tray to someone's room, the busboys, we always felt that we should get a bigger tip for room service. So what do you, are you asking for a percentage for me? You know, my bad. I, 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 I miss, I didn't explain this properly because when I saw the number, it says 15 to 20%. I'm not a room service guy, okay? I don't do it. I'm not judging. I know people happen to love room service. I'm not, it's just not what I do. What I meant was, and it says 15 to 20%. What I meant was, and I Googled how much should I tip room service. What I meant was, how much should I tip cleaning service at hotel? That's what I meant. Housekeeping. How much should you leave? Yeah, that's what I meant. How, how long are you gonna stay for? The um, other question night. is a lot, of, a lot of a lot of hotels don't do it anymore. You have to actually request like twenty four hours in advance to get your room cleaned. Uh, apparently, I'm a very generous tipper. Which credit to me, I already know I'm a very good tipper. What do you leave? I take, pride, bucks? Of, I, I take pride in my tipping. So I said to Robin, I only have thirty dollars. Do you have any money? I was there three nights. She said, How much do you need to tip? I said, I don't know. More than that. I, we've been here for three nights. So she googled it, and it says. Housekeeping, one to five dollars per night. What the hell? That's ridiculous. I bet if we did a survey, probably seventy percent of people do not tip cleaning people at hotels. One to five dollars per. What I mean? Okay. Duncan, Duncan so, says you're causing inflation and tipping. You're the problem here. So, well, listen. 
I, I grew up in the hospitality business. I, I, I get it. So I tipped, I tipped 30 and I gave a $25 room, uh, uh, casino trip. <laughs> yeah. From your winnings, huh? By the way, I forgot to, I forgot to, I think I forgot to tell you this. Did I tell you this? What happened with my credit card? I can't remember if I told that story. You lost it at the restaurant. Did I tell you the, the outcome? And someone else got it, right? Someone else yeah, walked yeah, away okay. with their credit card. So did I tell you that I spoke to the owner? What are they, so what are they going to give you? So here's, so here's what they said. They're like, ah. Did, so you think someone sna snagged it and tried to use it? No, or was it like an accident? No, 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 no. No, she gave it to somebody by accident. Because I saw they were charging at like Costco and gas station. It wasn't, you know, criminal. It wasn't mischievous behavior. It was an honest mistake. Um, so I'm like, listen, I don't even, I'm not like asking for anything. I just want you guys to know, like, I'm kind of annoyed. Like, this is my main credit card. All my bills are tied to here. And they're like, yeah, man, I'm sorry. Like that happens. Like, you know, here's what we would recommend. Like every time you, you, get a drink, just swipe and close out and then just, you know, tip when you're done, which is kind of annoying, but okay. And then, you know, he was like, just, you know, next time you're here, let me know, I'll, bu I'll buy you a drink. And I was like, I feel like the, the, it, it felt, it felt inequitable. Like this is a major inconvenience. So anyway, I went back to the bar this week and I ordered uh, a vodka on the rocks. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I gained five pounds. I don't know if you could tell, I gained five pounds. Twitch eating this summer? Middle-aged, gained five pounds. So I got a vodka on the rocks, and on the receipt, it said $13 for the vodka, $4 for the rocks. Now, I don't mind paying $17 for the vodka, but- That's a, weird, know, way to, that's a weird way to, to break it out. Yeah, just, just, just write $17. And so I asked the bartender, just, hey, what's with- I'm like, I'm like I, and I, I preface that. I'm like, I'm not complaining. I'm just curious. Why do you- put the charge for the rocks instead of just writing $17. And, and she was like, well, because if it's just a shot, then it's like one ounce, but with the, with the, with the rocks, it's like, whatever it is, one, two ounce, What if you would have said I want a vodka neat? It's a good question. But anyway, but the owner was there. He saw me talking to the, to her and sort of jumped in. And I, I wasn't, again, I was not, not like causing a scene. I was literally just, I was smiling, just making a conversation. And you know what he did? He did not buy me my vodka. Did he pay for your rocks? <laughs> no, nothing. <laughs> I don't know if you knew it was me, but I'm, I'm bald. How could he forget me? And I was only a week ago. There's a lot of you. I guess. Uh, oh, I had, a, I, had a, I had a little credit card one, too. We got an email from Wayfair a couple weeks ago. We've been buying some outdoor furniture. Uh, hey, we got a down. We got a, uh, someone logged into your account from some other place. Was this you or not? And it wasn't. So we went on our Wayfair account, and someone had charged three $250 gift cards on our Wayfair account. So, like you, was it, George, was it George? Like you, we had to cancel our credit card, and then all the stuff that was tied to it, my wife had to go change, and it was a huge it's pain. Super in the butt. annoying. But did yeah. I ask? Did I ask Wayfair for like a new patio furniture set for my inconvenience? No, I just canceled it. Shut my mouth shut. Well, hang on. I didn't ask the guy for anything. I asked. I asked the. I asked you what I should ask for, but I didn't. I, did, I just. I, I just said, yeah, it's annoying. Yeah, but it's also annoying to close out your tab every single time. Leaving your tab open is kind of a baller move. Like, right? It's just easier. Yeah, it's easier. Should I should I want to close your tab out? No, leave it open. <laughs> That's a great feeling, right? No, we're here for the we're here for the time being. Leave it open. Yeah. Uh, Zillow did a, some sort of survey, and it says more homeowners say they are either listing their home for sale or considering selling their hair their home. Did I say hair? And then did I say hair? Yeah. In, in the next three years. Now I wonder if. There's probably a lot of factors at play here. I wonder if like, for example, in 2000, 
Q2 2021, you weren't selling your house. There was there was a lot more buyers and sellers, right? You're still in the in the pandemic. True, but that was like the height of the. I could see this this stuff thawing out eventually. People are gonna, after a while, the the shock of the three percent mortgage is gonna wear off. People are gonna have more equity, and they're gonna go. You know what? Let's just do it. Like it's gonna it's gonna be tough to go to like a six or seven percent mortgage, but we'll be able to refinance. People are eventually going to say. We're not going to be beholden to this mortgage rate for our whole lives just because it's a great financial deal. Eventually, people are going to say, screw it. Let's just rip the bandit off and do it. It's going to happen. Ben, you made the case that during the next recession, people are going to tap their home equity. Big time. What if, what if when rates come down, people refinance and all of that spending, all of that savings gets spent back into the economy and then no recession? That's what I'm, no, that's what I'm saying. That was my point exactly. You just made it for me. That like that's going to be the floor for people for spending. Like if if something if their income falls or they whatever, they're going to pull that equity out and spend it. That's my. Oh, uh, well, what well, we're saying we're saying the, the same thing slightly differently. I'm saying people are going to refinance and then they're going to have more money to spend. You're saying people are going to take the money out of their house. Oh yeah, right. Yes. Yeah. So I think both, but there aren't going to be that many people who have the ability to refinance unless it's a cash out refinance. That's what I think is going to happen. You're going to get mm. a wave of cash out refinancing and home equity lines of credit. And people are going to sp- use that as spending to make up for any shortfall. So Zillow is uh, who is has a pretty good read through into the into the housing market. They expect home prices to rise six point three percent from June to June. How about that? How's the Zillow stock doing? You still holding? I'm still holding. They are reporting earnings tonight. Okay, it's up seventy percent year to date. I sold Airbnb because you know what? Airb- I mean, I'm not. Airbnb reports tomorrow too. I'm, I wasn't like, a, I'm not like super long-term bullish on the stock, but I, I do like the company. I thought it was just, uh, it's not pretty to make some money. So I made 30% to move down. Right. You still own Airbnb? Yeah. I'm going to hold that one forever. I think until the CEO leaves. All right. Uh, Len Kiefer at Freddie Mac has some good stuff on the mortgage rate lockdown that we haven't seen before. So the mortgage rate lockdown. Yeah, like the people being stuck in their house and how much they've saved. I think this is like an annuity stream that people have created by not having to go to market rates. So he said, in a rising rate environment, homeowners with a fixed mortgage provided by Freddie Mac have locked in over $50,000 per household in value. He did like basically the the present value of the savings you're getting from the from between what the rate you locked in versus what the rate is now. Uh, we estimate that considering the company's single-family mortgage portfolio, homeowners of a fixed-rate mortgage financed by Freddie Mac have locked in savings of a collective $700 billion in total value. This is equal to about 25% of the outstanding unpaid principal balances in their single-family mortgage portfolio. Just like, I don't think people thought through the ongoing savings you that people have opened opened up like on a monthly basis in their biggest, for most people, for most households, their mortgage is the, by far their biggest payment they make, right, of their monthly budget. And you've locked in a low rate for that or a low payment for that for, from now until whenever you get out of it, mm-hmm. right? And it happen, it's a monthly stipend, essentially, that you've locked in. And I don't think people thought through how much those savings continuing forward would give people a margin of safety that it has. So it's like saving. So Jacob Economic did a- That's such a good point. Like if, if my mortgage rate was not- Three per three ish, whatever. But if my mortgage rate was five and a half percent, six percent, that would be another. I don't know. I'm making this up. Twenty five thousand dollars a year, whatever it is. It's, it's a big a ton number. Of money. So look at Jake at Economic did this. Person A has a five hundred thousand dollar loan at seven percent. Uh, they put five thousand dollars into retirement per year with ten percent returns. Their balance is eight hundred twenty two thousand dollars in thirty years. Pretty good. Person B has a five hundred thousand dollar loan at two point five percent. 
they put $5,000 into the market per year, plus mortgage savings of the 2.5% versus 7%, retirement balance in 30 years is 3.5 million. That's so if you just invested the difference, that's how much bigger your balance would be. It's a huge amount of money that you're saving every month. Wow. Wait, did I say, did I tell you how much I love Jerome Powell as a, <laughs> as a Fed chairman? I think he's one of the best. <laughs> just great. Uh, is someone vacuuming there or what's going on? You know what? What is that? Yep. That's what I thought it was. It's, it's, a, it's the coffee grinder. Okay. I'm sorry. Grinding your own coffee beans. I'm not a coffee guy. It's a bit pretentious. Like you can't just buy the coffee like in the little capsules already made. That's a great point. The only time I buy whole beans is if, is when I buy them by accident. Right. I, I mean, what's, I, I don't like buy a bunch of tomatoes and make my own ketchup for my burgers. What's the point of grinding your own coffee beans? Does it really That's taste not that much better? Apples to apples, but point taken. Other time I'm on your side. All right, I, I'm looking for some good news for first-time homebuyers because I feel like it's always bad news. So All right. this is from what the is Wall it? Washington Post. Rent is finally cooling. See how much prices have cooled in your area. They show that rent growth in the country is back to pre-pandemic norms, growing around 1.1 to 3% per year. The biggest reason for that slowdown, more housing. Nearly 1 million new apartment units, an all-time high, are under construction around the country. 520,000 expected hit the market this year, 460,000 next year. So look at this chart here. More new apartments under construction today than any time in the past 50 years. This eventually has to be a good thing for the housing market. I would love it if we just built more houses. That would be a, a, a quicker way there. But if we're building more apartments and rents are coming down, eventually that has to lead to lower demand in the housing market and potentially opening up supply, correct? Is that fair or not? That makes sense. Again, I would rather just not use the workaround and just build more houses. But I think this eventually will be good for first-time home buyers, that there's, I think more supply in apartments is a good thing for that. Ben, last week, you, uh, I was asking you, like, dry powder, what does it really mean? Is it, you know, a number that's sort of nonsensical? Bank of America tweeted, or tweeted, Bank of America has a chart showing pri that, uh, private equities have a record amount of dry powder that could be deployed to offset some impact of tighter credit. So they show the dry powder, and then they showed the dry powder as a percent of total bank credit. And it's both lines are going up dramatically. And I thought, come on, there's no way. If if lending standards are increasing or, or if they're more restrictive, then uh, these companies are not going to step in. They're probably going to follow the banks. And and actually, actually, the, the, the CEO of Lazard, who knows, who actually knows about the space versus Wait, me. Wait, this I'm is saying that that their borrowing costs are much higher. So the, ha the fact that they have dry powder is just going to help like, like take away some of those costs or help make it easier to eat those costs. If companies aren't being able to get funded the way that they were because lending restrictions are increasing from banks, okay. then Private these companies will be able to step in and fill the void. And I thought that was nonsense. But L the CEO from Lazard says, no, actually, no, that's not nonsense. Here here's, here's a quote. And this is, by the way, this is from the transcript. Huge shout to them. We're going to use them later on in the show. They do a great job reporting consolidated snippets on earnings season. And yes. oh boy, is it earnings season. Okay. Com combining so the quarter with the transcript is a very good thing if you want to know what's going on with companies. Yeah. So it says, credit funds are disintermediating banks. So here's the quote. 
What this is really addressing is the rise, the significant and very substantial rise in the private credit markets and accessing that source of capital. It's a very flexible, very creative source of capital that now competes, if not equally, even ahead of what traditional financing banks, public financing banks, public markets do for our corporate client base and our restructuring client base. And we're kind of making sure we're talking to all the sources of capital on the other base. Anyway, you get the point. Uh, so maybe maybe these are viable sources for non-bank lending. Yeah, that makes sense. The, 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 other, the other problem for private equity is, though, this is probably a better business right now than, for them than a leveraged buyout, because if they're doing a leveraged buyout, it's costing them more to finance something, too. Good point. I do wonder if they're pulling back on leverage. You'd, you'd assume so. You would think. Okay. All right. So here's from the transcript. They, so they break it down. So the headline is this, the consumer is very resilient. And this quotes from, from the CEO of Chipotle, the CEO of MasterCard, and the CFO of Visa. And they're all saying the same thing. I'm not going to read all these quotes because they're all saying the consumer is demonstrating how resilient they are. That's from Chipotle. MasterCard is saying consumer spending across all spending bands from affluent to low remains stable. Visa said, I mean, almost word for word, the exact same thing. Our data did not indicate any behavior change across consumer segments. So any sort of, I'm using air quotes, credit crunch from the regional banks, forget about that. That that just never came to fruition. I mean, <laughs> that feels like it was 15 years ago at this point. The banking crisis, crisis, you know, in quotes. Does that not feel like it was so long ago? And it was like five months ago, four months ago. Yeah, I'll say what I said then again. I do believe that if the Fed didn't do what they did, it could have turned into something really, really nasty. If they didn't take it as seriously as they did and they just let it go. After our talk yesterday, we had a we have a talking book coming out next week with John Neff from Acre Capital Management, which I thought was I always thought was Acre. Uh, I was totally off there. They're a concentrated portfolio of like 18 stocks, and their biggest holding is MasterCard. And did his take of MasterCard's business fundamentals versus their stock price, did that not make you want to buy the stock after listening to that? I did buy the stock. <laughs> you bought it yesterday? <laughs> did you? I did. I did. Well, listen, I mean, the stock look like, looks like it's breaking out. So I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an easy, uh, I'm okay. easily influenced. So, what can I say? All right. So, But, but I bought a start, startup position. I want to add. Startup okay. position. Keeping your trading hat on, what's, what's your tell for if you're right or wrong? Are you, are With you Master- price only? Well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give MasterCard a little bit, a little bit more time. So if it falls 8%, I'm, I'm likely to add. There's some stocks that, I, that I'm like, no, I'm not losing money in this stock. If it doesn't break out here, I'm out. This is not one of them. It's also, you know what the market cap of the stock is, right? It's bigger than it's I big. thought. It's like it's three like something. $370 billion. It's a big company. Yeah, but okay. Um, credit to Uber. They, Dara, their CEO, was the first CEO to publicly come out and said, all right, the game has changed. Wall Street is not doesn't care about growth anymore. They care about profitability and they achieved their first, uh, their first quarter of uh, they, operating games. I'm, sh- I'm sure there's better, there's better examples of there's other examples of this. But is Uber not the only example of a VC started fund up that essentially uh, ate a lot of the costs for you up front, and then was successfully got all these clients just hooked to their service, and then were able to raise prices down the line, right? They were being they were subsidizing cheap rides forever. And then once people got hooked on it, they could raise the prices and people said, I'm used to this service. I love it so much. I'm sure there are other examples, but this is a damn good one. So the, the, company, the company lost cumulatively $31.5 billion since 2014, which is a hell of a battleship to turn around. So Sounds like a lot. They, report, they, they made $326 million this quarter. 
Uh, last year at this time, they lost 713, then they lost 495, then they lost 140, then 260, and they, they made it. So credit to them. The stock is down um, 6% today. It's up like 90% of the year, so maybe not super surprising. Again, this just goes to the p- fact that you know expectations are super high going into the quarter, and uh, you know stocks have been on fire. Just we've gone in general again going back and forth on my pendulum example. We've gone from expectations were way too low to now expectations are high again. Yeah, um, there is another Substack or blog platform Aeronaut. This guy Thomas Reiner has some good stuff, and he posted a on like travel and leisure stock performance. And the year to date for the <laughs> airlines, rideshare, so even like DoorDash is killing it. Uh, booking and Expedia and Airbnb and then cruise lines, hotels, car rental. I mean, all of these stocks are on fire. I know this. It's it's a lot of this has to do with the fact that Uber went public in a, at a very weird time. But here's Uber's returns by year since 2020. They're up 71 percent in 2020, down almost 20 percent in 2021, down 40 percent last year, and up 100 percent this year. Wild ride. Yes. Uh, this guy has a chart showing domestic airline fares for 2019, 23, and 2022. And it looks like in June and July, we are below prices paid in 2022, which is a good thing. And 2022, just a little bit of inflation there. Just a little. Just a little. Uh, here's a great tweet from Wasteland Capital. By the way, I saw a stat about Snap, and we like were joking that just it feels like it falls 15% every time it reports. <laughs> it just gets slaughtered every time it reports earnings, it seems like. Yes. I really think for the last four quarters, it did re- re- decline double digits. All right, so here's a tweet. Snap has paid out a total of $8.2 billion in freshly issued stock since its 2017 IPO. The company's market cap today is $16 billion. And it has never showed a profit. It's lost $9.2 billion since the IPO. Look at the long-term chart of this. It looks like a shit coin. They they invented a literal money printer for themselves. I'm looking at Snap. That does seem wrong. I mean, you have to pay your employees, I guess, and incentivize them. But yeah, I don't know. Moving on. The Journal did a a good post on five ways car buying has changed forever. Slim pickings. Was the, top, the comp- was, the, was the first one that you now need to use a car broker to buy a car? Well, you do. That's how, many people, how many people have emailed us over the years asking for your car broker's number? Lots. Lots. Slim pickings. They're just not making as many cars. The days of the lots being full with hundreds of cars, that's gone. Stubbornly high prices, lower industry-wide sales, fewer lease deals, and more expensive used cars. So the average price for a new car is up 36% from the end of 2019. I don't see this going back to where it was. The average monthly payment for a new car is $733. Jeez. That's nuts. Well, part of it is because you're paying 8% to borrow, right? That is so much money. You know what the MSRP range is for a 2023 Honda Accord, which is what I'd be driving if I didn't have kids or if I didn't need it? 2023 Honda Accord. Yeah. Uh, 27,000? Yeah, it starts at 27 to 37. That that that'd be I'd be driving a twenty seven thousand dollar new Honda Accord, and I'd drive it for fifteen years if I could. If- By the way, those are much 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 nicer than they were like when we were in high school. I've always loved an Accord. Why? It's just it's just the most vanilla car. I don't mean that, I don't not in a bad way. I'm an A to B guy. I'm an A to B, yeah. and it's it's yep that's it, and it's a it's a nice car. Uh, okay, here's an interesting one from uh, Morningstar. John Reckenthaler looked at the. Pension or, or the retirement income 
the median person had median retiree had in 1973 versus 2021. And he broke it down by social security, pension, and then he also gave pension participation, which everyone assumes that like everyone had a pension back in like the 60s and 70s. He said it was actually closer to 44%. And it was the pension payment he received is right around social security. That's a great myth bus, by the way. Everyone had a pension. No, not true. Right, 44% of people. So he said you received $166 in a monthly income in, for the Social Security, and if you apply that to $2021, it's like $1,000 a month. He said the median private sector retiree was getting about $1,400, $1,500 a month in retirement income between Social Security, pension, and then they didn't have like defined contribution plans back then, right? There's no 401k, there's no IRA, versus someone in 2021 received more like $1,900 a month in retirement income. And a big part of that is because Social Security was up by 60% in that time, which is a pretty darn good deal. And again, I'm not a, a government sponsor here, Booster, but easily one of the most successful government programs in history. And I know people complain about how much the government spends on Social Security and Medicare and stuff. That, that program alone has kept millions of people out of poverty in retirement. Uh, anyway, I know we always talk about how, how much worse things have gotten for people. This is a situation where things have gotten better for, for retirees in the last five decades or so. Duncan said I'm causing inflation with my uh, tipping. No, you know who's really causing inflation? Taylor Swift. The average concert goer spent an average of $1,327. My family is bringing up this average because my wife and daughter went to a Taylor Swift concert in Detroit. And yes, I can tell you, a lot of money spent. Um, I think I, I think I did a bad parenting thing. Okay. What do you got? So last night, Robin told me that Kobe was wanting to make a wish upon a star, which is very cute. So we went outside and, uh, she told me that he was going to wish for an Xbox, <laughs> I, but, but he, he's not getting an Xbox. He, but he does love playing Mario Kart and like a switch. So I said, Kobe, make sure that you wish for something that you might actually get. Because I said he's not getting an Xbox. So he's like, okay, okay, okay. So I said, did you do it? He's like, yeah. Wait, wait, no, no, no. Uh, yeah. Okay, okay, I'm done. I'm done. So we, we came inside. He said, do I tell you what I wish for? I said, no. If you tell me, it, it might not come true. So I said, what you do is write it down on a piece of paper. And, uh, and so I took... <laughs> So he said, how do you spell? So he's, he said, like, I wish for, he said, how do you spell for F-O-R? So he said, yeah, F-O-R. So he put it, so he put it under his pillow. He folded it up. I said, run to the bathroom. And I said, go brush your, go brush your teeth so that I could see what he wrote. Yeah. So this is what he wrote down. So you see the four? So yeah. I'm like, what did he write down? I wished for I can't a, get tri- a trillion dollars. You see? T-O-R. <laughs> <laughs> it says T-R-I-L and then on the next line E-I-N and then on the bottom line D-O-I-L-R-E-S a trillion dollars <laughs> now we don't I don't speak to Kobe about money he's six years old you know what I mean like he knows he knows what money is yeah. but I'm I'm not like a psycho that talks to him about yeah. dividend investing right so the reason why I say I think I did a, bit, a bad parent thing was this morning I put a hundred dollar bill into that piece of paper and when he woke up, he was so, so excited, like beyond excited. But I think I did a bad thing for two reasons. Number one, the $100 is way too much money. If I gave him five, he would have been thrilled. Just excited. Um, and the fact that I gave him his wish right after he wished for it, I feel like I should have made him wait for it. But I, I so I called Robin when I got off the train this morning. I said, you know what? I don't think that was, I, don't, I think I did the wrong thing. I don't think that was good parenting. 
the funny thing is, is they they assume one bill is worth the same amount, no matter what it says, right? But he he knew it was a hundred, so he was like super super stoked. But we I wish I could a, take it back. We learned a valuable parenting lesson this week. Do our our twin six year olds went off to camp? Just a day camp. They get bus there and bus back, and they go to camp. And they, there's a little store at the camp where they can spend their money to buy candy or whatever. And the camp said, put $5 a day on your thing and let the kids spend like $5 there on whatever, little trinkets. And and so my boy put $25 on their thing the first day, and it's like a credit card essentially. And they get they get home, and my son's got his arms full of stuff, a big stuff, stuffed animal and candy and a pen and all these little trinkets. And uh, he's like, I can't believe you guys gave us 25 bucks. So they we put 25 bucks up front, and they just spent the whole thing. And so <laughs> well, I got to work on I got to work on budgeting a little bit. So now yeah. they assume $25 a day. Okay. Uh, we got a few right. comments this from is, readers, right? Oh, go ahead. Or listeners. Which one? Oh, I, so this, this, I thought this is a great email from Trevor. Michael and Ben, showing some support for Michael. Sorry you lost your Maui gems to the ocean, but take no shame for quality sunglasses. The world looks 10 times better through HCL bronze, especially in the water period. Uh, bu- 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 um, makes for an interesting topic. And I t- this is why I'm reading the email. What products in your life do you treat as we call BIFL, buy it for life? Things even early on you should go for high quality and keep forever. Mine is a Japanese knife. High quality, beautiful, and it makes me care about keeping it in good condition. 250 bucks, but going on 10 years strong and well worth in my books. That's such a great point. Like some stuff you pay for, but I don't know that I have anything. I don't know if I'm like cheap or like, I don't have great knives. I have terrible pans. Uh, The easy one for me that I learned right away is we didn't buy a starter home. I didn't want to buy a place that I had to like fix up. And That's so a great we, answer. We reached for our first house and spent up a little at the top of our range because we knew we wanted, and we lived there for 10 years as opposed to buying something that was cheaper that we would have been fixing up and tried to flip in like four years or whatever. That's a great answer. Matter of fact, I bought new pants from Amazon and they're horrible. They were like 140 bucks and they're just, they're, they're garbage. So I might get like grown up pots and pans. I'm also, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm calling BS on Trevor here. There's no way that, that things look better through a nice pair of sunglasses. Remember sorry. those? I'm sorry. It, it, <laughs> the world does not look better in certain pairs By of sunglasses. By the way, I said that I look like Neo. What I meant was, I really, I look, I look like Morpheus, not Neo. I meant Morpheus, the bald, Morpheus ah, bald. Yes, good point. All right, one more. Uh, on male bikinis, per your comment on the podcast this weekend, whether people actually wear Speedos, it goes beyond that. I was posted to Brazil and uh, the early 2010s, where speedos called a sunga locally are ubiquitous. It was a shock for Americans when they denied when they were denied entry into local water parks because they used American bathing suits, which Brazilians consider dirty and inappropriate. It is a funny cultural difference. Uh, on the other hand, I now live in Indonesia, and most people dive in pools or ocean with all their clothes. <laughs> what? Yeah. I cultural, I guess. People, a lot of people thought it was funny that you called it a male bikini as opposed to a speedo. <laughs> I don't know. I guess. You're right. It's it's a speedo. Um, all right. So I saw I saw Oppenheimer. But before we talk about Oppenheimer, did we talk about the drop last week? I brought it up a couple weeks ago. Okay. Uh, so that came out before Gandolfini died. I mean, I'm sorry. After he died. So he shot Maybe. the movie, died, and then the movie came out. Thoughts? Uh, I enjoyed it thoroughly. I thought Tom Hardy's uh, Brooklyn accent was ridiculous. But it, that, that's my type of movie. It's dark and gritty and a little dirty. I liked it. Tom Hardy's good in that, right? Besides the accent. He's, he's good in everything. Uh, all right, so so Oppenheimer. I saw it in IMAX, thank God. Uh, I would say it's an incredible movie, an incredible achievement that I didn't care for. 
That's it. I thought you were going to love it. I'm surprised to hear that. Uh, so now there's a, this requires, I mean, a deeper discussion because I think most people loved it or at least it, liked it. Was it too long? Oh, it was way too long. The last hour, if you saw the movie, the last hour just completely dragged for me. Um, obviously there's parts about it that I loved, like parts, but I'm not going to revisit the movie. I thought the story that they told was a little bit weird, confusing, hard to follow and disjointed. Um, and if I saw it at home, I'd say this was a piece of shit. So I think one of the reasons why I found it tolerable and partly enjoyable was because I saw it on a 400 foot screen or whatever. So all credit to Nolan. I thought you were going to be blown away. I'm shocked by this review. All people, all credit to Nolan. People have different tastes. And me, for me personally, it just did, didn't do it for me. I'm like a, I'm like a six, four, but listen, if you loved it, I understand, you know, people, people, people enjoy it. Just wasn't for personal, me. Personal preference. Okay. Wasn't for me. Did not have, you know what? Here's the thing. I wasn't really entertained. I didn't have fun, you know, and, and even being able to appreciate what he did, like the fact that he did it was incredible. Just, uh, didn't, well, didn't laugh for me. That's reading all. the reading. I'm still reading the book. It's not exactly an uplifting story, his life. It's, it's kind of dark and a little depressing, even though it's like crazy how smart this guy was. Yeah. Uh, I got a new show that I'm halfway through. My wife and I flew through. I watched the first episode of this, and I told my wife, I said, all right, I'm going to stop now, watch the first episode, see if you want to watch it with me. She watched, she's in. It's called Outer Range on Amazon Prime. It came out, I think I saw an interview with Josh Brolin. He stars. I, I'm a huge Josh Brolin fan. I think he's great. He's, he's incredible. Did, wait, did Amazon make this? Amazon show, and... Is it sci-fi? Is it a sci-fi Western? If you watch it, you think at the beginning, you think, oh, this is like Yellowstone, but a little more serious than Yellowstone because right. it's like the rancher whose ranch has been in his family forever. But then there's a sci-fi element of it. And I think the show would be good even if they didn't have the sci-fi, but it does have the sci-fi and it's enough to keep me interested. And the first three episodes, I I'm so, I so don't know how they're going to land the plane on this one, but I, I'm enjoying it so far. Really good cast, okay. a bunch of people you'd know and like. I don't know how they're going to land the plane, but I like it so far. There we go. Uh, All right, anything else? All right, animalspiritspod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time.